Hi, and welcome to another episode of Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter. I'm Pedro Joe Greer. I'm the dean at University Roseman University College of Medicine. And the idea of this program is to take things that are happening in society, how they influence people's health, and how they should influence us as we develop a new medical school with a new curriculum, and what needs to be taught to prepare this future workforce. So live from Studio A in Las Vegas, it's Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter. And I'm joined here today by two incredible individuals, Dr. Fasad Kamyar and Quintella Winbush. He is a psychiatrist and a very special psychiatrist, I might add. <laughs> and Quinny is a peer support specialist. Mm -hmm. Mental illness in the United States of America is, in my opinion, the number one public health problem we have. One that we tend not to address appropriately. We don't even have a system that could take care of the situation in this country appropriately. We actually have very few systems in healthcare mm -hmm. that do that. However, mental health is increasing, we see the number of suicides. 80% of gun deaths are suicides, 80%. They aren't big guns, they're little handheld guns. So we need to find policies to deal with that. The stress that children are being put through, what has happened during COVID. The fact that prior to COVID, we saw reports of increasing suicide, poisoning or overdose and alcoholic liver disease, interestingly not led by blacks or Hispanics, mm -hmm. but led by non-Hispanic whites. And they actually in, 2019, in 2017, for the first time in 100 years, increased the morbidity and mortality of this country. And these individuals had one difference than those that were their same age. They were mostly boomers. They never went beyond high school, the social determinants. And I know that in drug uh, rehabilitation or drug therapy, that the social determinants become one of the most important factors for recidivism in what happens in an individual. Let me start off with you, doctor. <laughs> First of all, it's a pleasure. Now, I want you to know that this guy was a software engineer from uh, San Diego State University. And we have to say, and I don't even know her name. What is your wife's name? Money Jeff. Monja? Yeah, she goes by MJ. Okay, MJ, thank you. Because <laughs> as the story goes, when he met you in business school, you were the one that got him interested in going into medicine. Is that true? It's true. Yeah, it's true. Now they have yeah. two kids, two boys, 11 and 6, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're lucky. I have two kids. My older one's a girl and my younger one's a boy. And when your older one's a girl, you think you dropped your son on his head. Okay? <laughs> so you're very lucky to have two boys. He is a psychiatrist and also certified in addiction medicine. But before we go into that, what drove you to go into psychiatry? Um, I, I think you touched on some of those points, right? Um, so I was, I was training uh, during a time when I think mental health was still that unknown, not really hot topic, something highly stigmatized and not, it just right. kind of wasn't being addressed. Um, in generally in medical school and healthcare, you have a bunch of brilliant people who are wanting to help other people. Uh, and there was plenty of uh, my colleagues who were going into all sorts of other fields. 
not so much the interest in mental health. Um, and so effectively when I was looking at the impact that I could make, not only was it, well, not a lot of people are going into mental health, um, but then also what's that impact that I can have? And when you look at sort of, uh, you know, chronic diseases that span other specialties, um, mental health impacts the family, the children, the friends, the social network, potentially more than, you know, if I'm someone who has high blood pressure, no one in my family might even know. But if I'm someone in my family who has a substance use issue or bipolar, it's probably a good chance. Well, I'm a gastroenterologist, and I would say 80% of my patients had an underlying behavioral health disorder, sure. which was manifested in the uh, GI tract. There you it go. could be anxiety, it could be depression, it could be bipolar, mm -hmm. and things that we don't normally talk about at home. Right. But you had something very special for you to look at something like that in medicine when nobody else was looking at it. Because I also remember one of the other uh, sad things about mental health excuse me, is doctors are afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of prejudice towards patients with mental health. They're not telling me the truth, this and that. So... You went into an area nobody wanted to go into. Now it's the biggest health crisis in the country. <laughs> That's right. And so we need to develop a national system. You'll have that next week. <laughs> he is also the director of the Collaborative Care of the High Risk Pregnancy Center and co-creator with his uh, partner in crime, Dr. Brian Arie, with the Maternal Opioid Treatment Health Education Recovery, which stands for mother. Right, yes. And wh what got you into that? Yeah, so um, my wife, who specializes in perinatology, okay. um, was, is one of the physicians at High Risk Pregnancy Center. Um, and just basically talk and shop. Um, a, a lot of issues of substance use was coming up. Um, these are difficult patients. They're having really bad outcomes. Furthermore, the neonates and the infants were having really horrible outcomes. Um, and, and, and the what he's talking about is the little newborn babies and the problems they were having apart from, from I would think withdrawal would be a major one major right and so yeah so so directly it was related to basically dealing with the uh, pregnant population right um, discussing these cases and uh, one of the uh, medications and treatment options that we have um, is uh, is was primarily being used in the valley, but it was one here in Las Vegas Valley. Uh, it's not one that I was specifically trained on um, versus a newer medication. And so I was like, well, why don't we just bring a program that uses some of these newer options, newer modalities, um, and see if we can improve outcomes for both, let's call, call it mom and baby. There you go. And so we started the uh, mother program. Are you at a particular hospital or? No, so it's, it's outpatient-based. Okay. It's outpatient-based um, at our clinics that we have both in uh, Southern Nevada and Northern Nevada. And as a peer support specialist, you see a lot of these mothers. Yes, every day. Um, we have uh, approximately about 10 um, patients right now at the Roseman University Empower Program, and probably about 75% of them are... Um, have mental health issues along with um, substance use. So I guess you call it dual, dual diagnosis, dual something diagnosis. like that. I'm no doctor, but yeah. That's exactly so, right. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and um, I see it a lot. And um, the thing is with me is that I'm not uh, really afraid of it. Um, and the reason is, is because, you know, 
I have been around it, being that, you know, I am in recovery, long-term recovery, and um, being out there in the way of the world that I was, well, using drugs, you run into that situation. Right. Not only that, my father um, was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic at 40, 24 years old. Wow. And, you know, that's the, from what I hear, that's the last stage. Um, you're supposed to know before then, right? Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, and I have a lot of mental illness on my father's side. So not only is it mental illness on my father's side, there's also substance abuse. So um, and, and it one of the pretty much affects me. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. I used to chair the Drug Policy Research Center at the Rand Corporation. And one of the things that we found was recovery. First of all, the, the, this whole thing that this country has a war on drugs, it's not going to win. We've been having this war on drugs since forever. Right. What we need to do is get, you know, uh, reducing harm. Mm -hmm. How do we help people? And we know that even if you have recidivism, if you're in a treatment program, you're not using. So you're reducing harm right then and there. Right. And it becomes imperative that we do that. But when you're a pregnant mother that's an opioid abuser or a stimulant abuser, which is what... Uh, Empower does with, and you are our psychiatrist. He's my psychiatrist. He tells me that I'm, I need help. And uh, is that um, these are not stable homes they come from. And so, and having dealt with a similar population uh, at our prior institution where we actually took care of kids of incarcerated parents, and the the there might be more than one kid in the family. There might be more than one father. There might be more than one mother. I mean, there's all these interactions that go together were there. And a lot of times, these are families that are struggling. And one of the things that we found was if you don't take care of the peripheral, the social determinants, and you don't have good family support, your chances of recidivism go up even higher. And if you're an addict, what do addicts do having been that the best man at my wedding? became an addict. Mm -hmm. You steal from family and friends. Mm -hmm. And when you have very little resources, generally it's just mom that's going to welcome you back. Right. And tell me how you deal with that, with the families. Um, well, with me, I had, um, first and foremost, you know, I, I uh, God is in my life. I was born and raised in church. So um, I, my mom and my, you know, my family always supported me. They, they always prayed for me. They knew that sooner or later, they didn't know when, I didn't know when, you know, that one day that I would get it together, you know? Um, so you really don't know. A person really doesn't know until it until you feel it. Like, I didn't know, I knew I was, because I'm not, a, I'm a fighter. So I continue to fight every time I fell down. I don't care how many times I went to jail, prison programs, continue to fight. Um, when you get tired, a person only knows once they get tired. So like where we work at, uh, you know, with the Empowered program, just like you were talking about how they're in a, um, they're in a program so that reduces um, their use. But what about when you get out? That's where we come in. To be able to um, accommodate them, try to help them to get housing, try to get, help them to get Social Security, um, help them to get their ID, everything that they need in order to function in life. Because that's another a whole nother part of it. 
you can stay in a program for a year. I went to seven programs. I didn't really, it didn't really click until the last program. And that was over 11 years ago. Congratulations. You know, so it, it, it just depends. You know, it just depends. So um, that's where I think that it's, a, it's really a good, um, Empowered is such an awesome program, you know, with Dr. Fazard and, you know, with me and Rachel Mack, who is the program care manager, um, Rachel Williams, who's a therapist, and of course, uh, Dr. Andrea Peterson. I feel that um, we are doing the women um, a big justice for being there because uh, they have somebody that they can go to. We are their support. A lot of times we're their only support. They have nobody else but us. So um, I feel like I have, I have a lot of gratitude for being there because I feel that everything that I went through in my life was for a reason and a purpose. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't in vain because now I'm able to reach back and help those that come through those walls at the Empowered Program and let them know that we care and we are support for them. And that's the most important thing is caring and yes. support, 100%. Doctor, what would you say is the most common underlying illness, a mental illness with substance abuse? I know that it's, it could be depression causing you to use substances, or it could be another disorder where the drugs themselves are used as therapy. Yeah, so if I had to pick a most common, it probably even, it wouldn't be a formal, like let's say DSM diagnosis of major depressive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, um, probably experiencing trauma. Experiencing trauma? Yeah. Experiencing you know that they did a study at the Los Angeles Unified School System, 95% of the kids had either visualized or been part of trauma. Yeah. And so... Yeah, um, you know, there's there's something called the ACEs study. Are you familiar with ACEs? So ACE, mm -hmm. Adverse Childhood okay. Experience. Okay, um, big study with the CDC. I think it was in partnership with Kaiser. Um, it was. They first looked. Kaiser was the first one to look at it, actually, as causes of obesity. Mm. Right, right. So thank you for mentioning that. Long story short, um, there's these definitions that they have for what are adverse experiences. Things like having uh, you know, a parent with mental health issues, incarceration, violence, you yourself experiencing neglect or abuse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then they looked at a bunch of outcomes. And uh, mo <laughs> the majority of the outcomes uh, were negative, right? There was a negative connotation. Right. Whether it's a chronic disease, whether it was a level of education, vocation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, basically what they found was the more adverse childhood experiences that you experience, the worse off you're going to be. Um, so much so, including these, disease, these chronic diseases, adverse health outcomes, including heart disease, cancer, I mean, sort of, sort of you name it. One of the conclusions or you know, assumptions was, uh, or conclusions let's call it, that no, there's no single greater factor that contributes to these things um, than trauma and these adverse and it's a sad thing for my profession that it's only pediatricians that ask those questions. Right. Actually, we had a guest here, and she was, started an organization that was for uh, children of incarcerated parents. And she says, what happens is, once you age out, there's no support for you. But then no doctor has ever asked about ACE. And her suggestion for the medical school was train your doctors so they ask that with every patient that goes through it, which is so vitally important. 
and particularly even in my subspecialty, which was GI, and that's only because the gastrointestinal tract, which is actually three different organs joined together by embryologic development, it's only second to the central nervous system and innervation. Mm. So all these things are going to be affected somehow in your gut. <laughs> Acid, constipation, loose stools, abdominal pain, mm -hmm. and all the things that drive you to the doctor that the doctor then says, okay, let's get a CAT scan and do uh, an endoscopy. Yeah, and, and in the meantime, nobody asked a question. I, uh, I'll tell you a funny story of happened to me one time. So I had a 30-year-old type A young Hispanic attorney come to me convinced that she had colon cancer because her next door neighbor and best friend was just diagnosed with it. And so she had no indication whatsoever for a colonoscopy. So after two hours talking to her, I said, listen, come back when you turn 50 for your screening colonoscopy. We had a long, long discussion. I think almost like you would have with your patients. <laughs> so she comes back 20 years later and says, do you remember me? I said, no, no, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. I said, she goes, I was here 20 years ago. I said, oh, I hope you're doing okay. She goes, no, no, I followed your advice, I feel great. I said, really? I said, what was my advice? She goes, oh, I got a divorce. I said, I told you to get a divorce? No, you told me to get rid of my stress. <laughs> so I said, wow, I got to phrase these things a little differently from now on. This is not quite my job to do say something like that. What kind of training? Because I, I plan to put uh, uh, mental health questions with every single case that is presented to a student, as well as social determinants, as well as ethical conflicts as well as disparities. So that if a patient is diagnosed with a mental health disorder, what is the actual disparity? What is that found? Now, there's a big problem in the studies too, looking at how we ask questions in an African-American community versus a white community versus a Hispanic community as to classifying the patient with what illness they might have. Because most of our DSM, uh, which is the classification of diseases, is based on a white population. And even within the white population, it's a taboo subject. Imagine an immigrant family. Imagine a family, an African-American family. Imagine the families that don't get to have a good education, so they don't know what's going on. And they don't have access to medicine or doctors. So what would you do? I mean, you know, one of my ulterior motives is to graduate as many psychiatrists as possible. <laughs> we want to make it the dermatology of the present. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, what? Besides the lectures you're going to give, I mean, but... Okay, sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, and, 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 you know, questions like this come up with, let's call it specific to substance use, right? Mm -hmm. um, and targeting or introducing bias in sort of how do we figure out who and what and when and where and why. Um, universal. Universal. I'll just use the term universal. You know, in substance use, we like to think of things like universal screening, um, but replace screening with whatever maybe that potential intervention is. But we're trying to identify things, right? Okay, so we might develop fancier tools in the future, but let's call it universal. So everyone, everyone. And this is important because we see, and, this, and the evidence shows this, right? Um, when we're talking about substance use in general, we talk about overdoses, right, which is like the pandemic of our times, and it was before COVID, it was overdoses, right, drug overdoses. Um, number one cause of death for reproductive age women in the United States, not cancer, not diabetes, not high blood pressure, not accidents, um, like motor vehicle accidents, et cetera, et cetera. Drug overdoses, right, okay. Um, so what we see is we have sort of a breakdown by race 
if you would mention Hispanic, black, white, or Caucasian, non-Hispanic population, when they looked at large sort of centers and who was being targeted for screening, right, which is sort of the first step in identifying, um, (laughs) the majority of those were basically people of color. Um, But when you look at the breakdown of who's actually using substances or has substance use disorder, uh, it's the minority. So we were completely missing, right? We were were underdiagnosing huge portion of the population and then overburdening basically another big portion of the population. 100%. There was a very interesting study that was done, my goodness, maybe 20 years ago, which looked at, if you looked at a black, Hispanic, Asian and white population who had the highest rates of drug use, and it was whites had it. The uh, African Americans had one of the lowest, and then Hispanics were up there, not Mm -hmm. quite as high as whites and Asians uh, in between blacks and Hispanics. But we have this image in our mind that only the the drug addicts are black. Correct. But if you come from Florida, we had the uh, pill mills. Which was it's an interesting point, and tell me what you think of this. I read an op-ed on this in one of the uh, our peer-reviewed journals, stating that the the systemic racism in medicine is what prevented the opioid crisis from truly affecting the black and brown community, because when they would come into the emergency room, they would be looked as drug seekers. The white community really had pain. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I silver lining, I guess, right silver lining um, from something that uh, we normally tend to think of as being horrible, right? Horrible. Um, Potentially, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, fantastic. But now when we're thinking about treatment interventions, right? Um, (laughs) Not only that, because if you need in-house treatment, that means you're unemployed. And even if you have follow-up treatment, you could be employed, but you're going to have to take time, take off. So you need really good family support. And if you have children, just the facts that you gave us right now about ACE, with these kids, you're not gonna to wanna to see your children go through that. What percentage of the American population do you feel has a mental health disorder? Ooh, uh, wow. Um, excluding I, Washington. Ex- excluding Washington. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd be at 100%. Yeah. Um, the, the, the numbers, so 2020 still, I think still being compiled from like the CDC right. standpoint and whatnot, right? Uh, we've got numbers of overdoses and those with substance use issues, which last time I checked was 40 million, which is roughly 15. Um, but that's substance use, uh, 15 uh, and it's 15%. Also, it's also how we collect the data. Most of this is hospital data, number one, number two. Right. And I remember when we were looking at this 30 years ago, when they were looking at things like, you know, percentage of patients that tested positive for cocaine in the emergency room, well, they forget the part that the doctor has the discretion to order the test or not. So you could have had a lot of people doing drugs that you just completely missed. Right, yeah. I, I would say probably at best a quarter of the population. Quarter. I would say you're being extremely conservative. Right. <laughs> I really believe it, it is the number one public health problem we have in this country because it not only is the public health problem of the mental illness, but one of the things that we found out in some of the case studies that we had done looking at social determinants was overutilizers of EDs. Unless you deal with the social determinant, you can't deal with the mental health issue. Mm-hmm. 
And if you can't deal with the mental health issue, you can't deal with the physical health issue. Mm-hmm. They're not going to take care of themselves and all these different things. So it's, it's a matter that we can no longer live in the isolation of my specialty. It's, I don't take care of livers. I take care of a human being that has a liver that is surrounded by family and friends mm-hmm. you know, that might have a, a substance abuse problem, alcohol or you know, intravenously. Then you're looking at different viruses and things of that nature. But all of these things contribute. And one of the problems with liver disease is what we call fatty liver, which a fatty liver is, looks exactly the same as an alcoholic liver. So if you have an alcoholic that's not taking care of themselves, and they have, you know, especially any insulin resistance, they're going to develop cirrhosis, which is the third leading cause of death in the population of death, uh, uh, death of despair. What would your solution be? Where do we start identifying? Pre-K? Why not? Why not? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think making it a comfortable conversation or a comfortable topic, um, leaving hopefully, ideally, the world of stigma behind when it comes to mental health. I mean, we have a long, we have a long way to go. Well, even in we, our own profession. We have a long way to go. Yeah, exactly. We don't um, talk about it. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I, I, I think if it would be great if people would feel comfortable sort of reaching out for help um, if it was on par with other chronic diseases. You have to make it a conversation that people are comfortable with. Yeah. And we saw that within our prior institution, the medical school was, how do we get students to talk, because there was an enormous amount of depression, and especially in residents, suicides, right. and doctors. How do we get the student comfortable with it? Because the student comes into medical school like a military. It's a very macho profession. You don't show emotion. So you don't want to be looked at as quote unquote weak. So we have to get rid of that. How do we get rid of these stigmas? That's number one. You're not looked at weak as if you have hypertension. So the first thing was just getting them to converse about suicide and depression and talk about that. And then having the available therapists if they need to see somebody and that therapist cannot be on your faculty there's an inherent conflict in that that uh, so let's start screening I mean we just now I think 2012 was the last time for uh, signs of autism from birth they they just redid all the criteria why aren't we doing the same kind of criteria for people at risk for mental health or for substance abuse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I forget exactly what this sort of you know cliched saying is, but if, uh, if you don't ask, then yeah. you don't, right? Um, on on one hand, I w- I wish that we could be really good at screening and get everyone plugged in, but I think if we were able to identify everyone who had an issue. The system wouldn't come crashing down. Well, um, we have we have a workforce issue, right? And we have a systemic issue. We don't have a system to be able to do this. So, however we create that, this is this has to be done. I mean, that it's it's imperative. You have to be able to bring in your experiences, <laughs> mm-hmm. your experiences, your experiences, and educate the students. Remember, the majority, overwhelming majority of medical students actually. of American medical students come from families 
that are in the top two quintiles of income. The average family income of a physician, a medical student, is two to three times that of the national average. So if you think there's no stress in these families, there was a recent report came out where they were looking at mental health uh, issues in public schools and they went to private schools, and they found that they were higher in private schools. And the reason is multifold. But one of them was the pressure the kids were getting from day one. What college are you going to? Let a kid be a kid, for goodness sakes. You know? Really. I mean, I was like a senior in high school, and I couldn't figure out what college I was going to. So I matured a little bit since then. But, <laughs> but is there anything that you would offer that we need to teach in medical school? Um, no, not at this time. No? No. I, I, all I can give is my... Um, you know, my uh, lived experience. Well, that's something that and, maybe the students should be yeah, exposed to. Yeah, and, you know, so they can be aware, uh, you know, maybe talk about coping skills and being aware of your surroundings and who you're with and who you're running with um, to try to, you know, put the awareness up more. Uh, I think that a lot of that was not around. Well, I know it wasn't. None of this help that, that is available now was available when I was drinking and using and the, uh, the help that's around is not quite enough. No, it's not. But it, it's here. And, and like you're doing now, you're bringing awareness about, you know, what needs to be done. So that's a big thing. Back then, mental health or addiction was something that you kept behind doors. They don't want to talk about it. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Even within the family. Right. <laughs> the, uh, well, there's a lot we need to do in this country. Mm -hmm. One of them is admit to the problems that we have then develop a system of not only mitigating it, but preparing the future workforce to be able to prevent it from happening again. We've too many times repeated this in our country's history, and it's time that we change that. So let's make this new medical school the medical school of the future. Let's make Las Vegas the place that people come here and we tell them things, we don't keep it in Vegas. That because we're from here, we see these problems and you have these incredible individuals that are out there serving human beings. And in your case, thanks, thank MJ, okay? Well, <laughs> okay, because you know, if not, you would have been like a software engineer that owned a big company and you would have no stress, but just, let, just, just with that. Dr. Kamyar, Quinny, thank you both. Thank you. For Your contribution you. that you've made here, I think, is invaluable. And from Studio A in Las Vegas, it's goodbye for now. Play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. 